Welcome to Enforcement and Compliance in Academic Research, a podcast series presented by Choate Holland Stewart, discussing the latest trends and other significant developments in related government investigations and regulatory compliance. Hi, this is Christine Savage. There's lots going on in the news these days, including more talk about science, how it's conducted, who conducts it, and who does or should profit from it than most of us can remember in our lifetimes. For example, we're hearing constant stories of the work being done around the globe, often in the form of international collaboration to address the COVID-19 pandemic. That includes how to create and improve upon ways to detect the virus or the development of antibodies to it, efforts to create one or more vaccines, and the deployment of various therapies to treat those who contract it. But at the same time, we're hearing frequent stories of the US government's growing distrust of certain collaborations, particularly with China, based in part on the discovery that foreign governments have worked for nearly a decade to steal the intellectual property of US researchers and academic institutions, much of which has been federally funded. The Department of Justice and a number of funding agencies are now pursuing criminal, civil, and administrative cases against dozens of individuals, including those who fail to disclose foreign support, whether it be in the form of research grants, overseas labs, free student assistance or salaries, those who've stolen samples or other materials from US labs and academic institutions, and cases of hacking, where it appears that foreign actors are trying to use brute force to steal information on COVID-19 efforts, whether it be from life sciences companies, hospitals, or others. For today's conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Brenda Gerald, Chair of Intellectual Property and the Cross-Disciplinary Life Sciences Practices at Choate, about what we should be excited about and worried about when it comes to international collaborations in COVID-19 science. Thanks for joining me today, Brenda. My pleasure. So Brenda, a seemingly huge number of pharma, device, and diagnostic companies have been focused heavily on COVID-19 research over the last several months. What observations can you offer our listeners about the level of collaboration and data sharing to help address the current pandemic? Look, it's absolutely unprecedented. I mean, all different types of groups, academic, small company, big company, are reaching out to, to work with each other to look at what their own experience and skill sets can provide and uh, where they can combine with others to hopefully develop something that works, whether it's little labs that historically have been sort of, you know, in the dark corners kind of screening things that are antimicrobial or something. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't cool. It wasn't something that people did a lot of, but suddenly everybody wants to know if you have a way to test for any kind of anti-coronavirus, there aren't that many things that were already set up, of course, for anything like COVID-19, but but for that class, um, all of a sudden these little labs have come out of the dark and been trying to, to do assays and stuff in high throughput. But even the big guys want to help. I, I've had experience with small companies who were interested in exploring something, but they know, for example, there's intellectual property that's owned by big pharma, and they've been sort of concerned and more than once they asked me to to play sort of anonymous call or outreach and to the big pharma and just say, is there any chance that you might license something or it'd be okay to use this? And it's been incredibly exciting to see how quickly they're like, absolutely, what can we do? How can we help? How can we get in touch with people? And so that's that's all very, very excited. There's exciting. There's there's a sense that 
we're going to need a lot of different shots on goal here, different kinds of antivirals, different kinds of therapeutics to modulate the patient's response, different kinds of vaccines. And so there, it's much less the traditional me versus you competition that is either my drug or yours. It's more we've all got to work together to find a bunch of different things that work and get them made so we can get them out there. So that's a, a really exhilarating environment. There's also a lot of support from um, governments as well, handling it in different ways that might have, whether it's licensing, compulsory licensing provisions or other protections and so on. So for the moment, everybody's focused on getting to the solution very cooperatively. And do you see sort of glimmers of hope that that cooperation is really going to help us get to a vaccine or therapy faster than would otherwise be the case? Absolutely. I mean, I think most people I know who are actually in the business of developing, whether it's diagnostics or, or vaccines or therapeutics, are absolutely confident that we're going to find things and, and um, we're going to get there. There is anxiety, candidly, around the the rate, and I think everybody's aware that when everybody's moving quickly and you know posting data that's not been peer reviewed or maybe doesn't have large sample size or not sufficiently controlled sample size or they don't give enough information about it, there's the concern that that everybody will go running down a rabbit hole because something looks interesting but we don't actually have the data to validate it, and and so there's a there's both confidence and excitement that we'll get there and concern that we need to be thoughtful and correct and make sure that we're getting there. One challenge that we don't often hear about that, that people don't think about is everybody thinks that there's a rush because A, there's funding, B, there's an immediate need and people want to get something out there. But what you don't think about is if you're going to do clinical trials on a patient population, you need a patient population. So the challenge with a pandemic is that everything we do to get it to go away means that we no longer have anybody to test to get statistical significance. And if we've got you know, hundreds of different programs that are trying to get access to the same patient population and try and learn things, the pressure is also just from the availability of subjects. And that's something that, that you don't hear a lot about, but I think it's part of the reason that it's so challenging to be prepared in advance. Like you hear people saying, why don't we have antivirals on the shelf that we can test? Because we wouldn't have known that they were effective antivirals because nobody was infected with that virus. We didn't even know it was going to come. So it's an interesting combination of challenges. So I guess something you said in there is really interesting to me because Part of what we're looking at is the benefit of international collaborations because this is a, a global pandemic. Given that the rate of infection seems to be declining in many, many places across the world, but is actually increasing within the United States, there's sort of an irony there where you may worry about the rigor with which some foreign countries conduct clinical research. I think the United States for a long time has been viewed as sort of the gold standard now it looks like that patient population you were just mentioning is so important is actually located here where standards may be a little bit better. I guess the question there is sort of what's sort of the push-pull associated with that? You know, like are there people that we think are abroad that may be a little further ahead of us, but now they don't have a patient population there? And how are, how is that maybe going to increase collaboration so that because we have the patients, <laughs> they <Yeah>. need us, <laughs> uh, but we need them and their know-how. 
Yeah, and it's an excellent question. It, you know, sort of across the board for all of these things, communication and coordination and candor, the three C's, super important and challenging, right? There is absolutely suspicion. There are there are just different approaches, different expectations, different perceptions of what constitutes appropriate ways to treat patients and ways to document and so on. And so there is a fair amount of, of distrust of information coming from different, particularly different governments, different regions of the world. And, and there's also just logistically as the patient populations move. So obviously the first patient populations were in China, then in Europe, and then in the US and now Latin America and still in the US. And so coordinating which therapies would be tried where was a challenge and I'm, everybody's aware of the hydroxychloroquine story and there was a huge rush to get that into a bunch of patients and then a huge withdrawal and then some people saying, well, wait, but maybe some patient populations and, and it's been very hectic. And then exactly as you say, the relevant patient populations, especially the early stage patient populations are disappearing in places like Europe where some of those trials were ongoing. And I think it was just last week the British government announced that they were pulling the last of those approve emergency use approvals and trials and so on. So, so yeah, it's quite interesting. You have completely different teams. You have completely different approaches to deciding which therapies can be tested when. And, and so if you need to shift to a different patient population um, in a different jurisdiction, it really can disrupt the trials. Do you think now that the science is advancing has it advanced to a point where you think there will be fewer of these emergency use authorizations coming down the pike because we have enough things that we're starting to trial in a more rigorous way that governments are going to sort of retreat from the tactic, which may have been perfectly appropriate at the time of let's just throw anything we can think of at it that might have an impact to sort of not confound the data or not waste good patients. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting therapies in an uncontrolled manner. Yeah, I'm not sure I think there will be fewer emergency use authorizations, but I think they it might be a higher hurdle to get one. Um, you might have to have better performance in some kind of model or something. But again, we are up against time that the patient populations are hopefully <laughs> not going to be around forever. And, and candidly, we've got better, better candidates coming, you know, more promising different types of therapies coming along because we have done more advanced work on them. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the emergency approvals will continue, but based on a more rigorous, um, less sort of a wish and a prayer of like, oh, hey, this one time worked on one virus, let's try it. Going back to the theme of international collaboration, obviously there are tons of positives potential positives. Um, you've talked a little bit about the risk associated with the rigor with which different countries or jurisdictions may conduct trials or maintain data or the reliability of information that we get even from foreign governments. But we're lawyers. Yes. So from a, from a legal perspective, what types of things are you advising your clients here in the United States in particular to be mindful of when they're entering into an international collaboration? Yeah, and I'm an intellectual property lawyer, so I, I focus on, on those issues and there are a lot of them, as you can imagine. So super important to understand who you're working with and who else they're working with and what kind of rights and obligations they are interested in and they might have with respect to their other relationships, whether it's funding sources or collaborators or whatever. 
we are at the moment focused correctly on developing technologies that work, right? That is the paramount goal. But at the end of the day, if we are going to be confident that we have established high quality diagnostics therapies, you know, that we can rely on going forward, there does need to be control in the system. The reason there's an intellectual property system, the reason there are lawyers involved in doing agreements and so on is to make sure that in fact, there are the appropriate controls in place so that we know going forward, let's say we find something that works, that we're gonna be able to make sure that it's manufactured properly and distributed properly and gets to the right patients and all of those things. And so it's important to, as I say, understand the people you're working with and the obligations that come from their governments, their funding sources, their employers, and their other relationships. And of course, you don't want to be the lawyer who says, oh no, don't go forward and try and save lives because I haven't dotted I's and crossed T's on all of these relationships. So for the moment, the, it's really just trying to advise clients where the risks are, what is the minimum amount of information that they need to be sure they have before they sign on any dotted line or mail anything to anybody else or share information? And what should they be paying attention to in the relationship? You know, where might there be red flags? You know, if people are asking for certain types of information or, or asking that you put data on shared servers, it, it, you know, before it's been vetted or things like that. What are the sorts of things that should get your attention? And there are, there are lots of layers here from my world, different jurisdictions have different requirements when new technology is developed. Many jurisdictions say, if new technology has been developed by somebody in my jurisdiction, you have to protect it in this jurisdiction first. Obviously, that's a challenge if you have multiple jurisdictions involved at the same time. There's only one first. So that needs to be navigated carefully and understand the different penalties in different jurisdictions. In some cases, it's just that the intellectual property ultimately isn't enforceable. In other cases, you can go to jail. These are different outcomes worth being aware of them. <laughs> Have you found any um, lessened concern or not concern, but lessened focus on ensuring that a particular client gets the profit associated with something if it's successful? Because I think, you know, I mean, obviously one goal of intellectual property is to have in place all of the controls that you're talking about and that, you know, to replicate something that, that is documented and vetted and real, you know, for shareholders and senior management teams, you know, there's this balance between wanting to be a good corporate citizen and frankly, just a good human and trying to solve this problem, uh, but also to make sure that companies remain profitable without price gouging. Sort of how is that sort of set of issues coming into or not into these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's always part of the conversations. In From what I'm seeing, I think happily, across the board, the focus with respect to COVID-19 is not on making money. Nobody is really caring whether they make money on what they're doing specifically in the COVID-19 context. However, they are viewing it as a positive pressure point in the sense of proof of concept, demonstrating that their technology can work, and then figuring out how to protect that value so that in the long term, as we generalize it, as we develop diagnostics or therapeutics for all kinds of diseases, including hopefully to protect us from future pandemics and so on, that those insights are properly captured um, in ways that, that companies can benefit financially and be confident of their future success. As I say, with respect to COVID at the moment, there's a pretty good, you know, guys, 
let's hope there's money to be made at some point, but that's, you know, first let's save lives so that there are <laughs> customers and patients for the future. And, you know, then we'll see. But, but I think it is making sure that you protect the, the many, you know, necessities, the mother inve- of invention here, we are in necessity, you know, all caps at the moment. So there's lots of important and valuable uh, discoveries that are being made that will be useful outside of this immediate crisis and, and making sure that we protect those and, and secure the development of those in the best ways um, is obviously an important focus. So part of securing that data, and you, you alluded to this in terms of identifying red flags. So if someone is being asked to place data on a shared server or you know something that's located overseas, are your clients talking about, or do you think they already have robust enough IT systems to prevent them from getting hacked? You know, we sort of read in the news a lot lately that there are foreign actors that are actively seeking to pilfer the work that's being done. Uh, here in the United States and perhaps in, in other countries related to COVID? Obviously, it varies client to client from what I have seen, and, and you may actually have better insight than I in this. I would say everybody can probably do better. <laughs> the quality and the nature of the hacking that we're hearing about is quite impressive and a little bit alarming, I would say. And candidly, there is a tendency, I mean, in the pharmaceutical industry, Clearly, because there's been a focus for so many years on protecting patient confidentiality and things like that, there are layers of safety that are built into a lot of the data sharing tools and so on that's quite, that are quite useful. On the other hand, on the more research and diagnostic areas in those contexts, you know, there's a tendency to share, to want to share information and to set things up on Linux servers and, and other sort of easily accessible sites and so on. And, and uh, we've talked a lot with clients about let's not do that. And even the sort of, you know, mainstream document sharing media and drop boxes and things like that. But, um, we do talk to them about making sure that you actually have the secure levels and do you know what you're doing. And if the if your collaborator is proposing to use a platform with which you're not familiar, don't just say yes. And I have to imagine that this issue is made only that much more complex by the fact that so many people are working remotely that even if the company's systems on-site are robust, if everyone is working remotely, you've got a lot more pressure points uh, that need to be examined. Yeah, and even things as simple as Zoom, right? There are all of the reports of Zoom not being secure and people being able to hack into your Zoom calls. And, and there are so, so, so many labs and companies that are completely reliant on, whether it's Zoom or any of those platforms, to have conversations and discuss the findings that they're having. And it is it is quite unnerving. I think for, for most people, it, you know, it's hard enough to do the science and get it to work. And it's just a little bit overwhelming to try and think about those issues as well. But so I do try and encourage clients to talk to people like you, frankly, and figure out what are practical steps who, you know, one person or a small group of people that's responsible for paying attention to these things. Again, not interrupting the work and stopping everything until we've perfected all moments of security, but having a level of awareness of where the issues are in the world and what steps can be taken to address them and to minimize the risk in your little pocket. Well, this has been great, Brenda. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today um, and to share your insights with everybody who's listening. A lot of fun, always great to talk with you. So thanks so much. 
Thank you for tuning into our podcast, Enforcement and Compliance in Academic Research. That's all the time we have today. For more information about CHOKE and our institutional research compliance and foreign influence practice, please visit www.choked.com. You can also listen to more episodes of Enforcement and Compliance in Academic Research and other CHOKE podcasts in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks again for tuning in. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation.